Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We've got a terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. And we'll visit with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture and author of several books, his latest, what makes humans truly exceptional? It is July the 21st, and on this day in 2011, NASA's Space Shuttle Program completed its final 135th mission uh, when the shuttle then is, uh, landed at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. During the program's 30 year history, its five orbiters, Columbia, Challenger, Discovery, Atlantis, and Endeavor, carried more than 350 people into space and flew more than 500 miles, million miles. The shuttle crews conducted important research, serviced the Hubble Space Telescope, and helped in the construction of the International Space Station, among other activities. NASA retired the shuttles to focus on a deep space exploration program that could one day send astronauts to asteroids and to Mars. In January 1972, two and a half years after America put the first man on the moon in July 1969, President Richard Nixon publicly announced that NASA would develop a space transportation system featuring a space vehicle capable of shuttling repeatedly from Earth to orbit and back. <clears throat> Nine years later, on April the 12th, 1981, at Kennedy Space Center, the first shuttle Columbia lifted off on its inaugural mission. Over the course of the next 54 hours, the two astronauts aboard NASA's first reusable spacecraft successfully tested all of the systems and orbited the Earth 37 times before landing at Edwards Air Force Base in California. In 1983, a second shuttle, Challenger, was put into service. It flew nine missions before breaking apart shortly before the launch of its 10th mission on January 28, 1986. All seven crew members, who could forget this, were killed, including schoolteacher Krista McAuliffe, who had won a national contest to be the first civilian to fly aboard a space shuttle. In the aftermath of the disaster, the shuttle program was grounded until 1988. The program's third shuttle, remember that was the O-rings, it's too cold. Devil's in the details. The uh, program's third shuttle, Discovery, made its first flight in 1984. Atlantis entered the fleet in 1985 and was followed by the Endeavour in 1992. The shuttle program experienced its second major disaster on February the 1st, 2003, when just minutes before Columbia was scheduled to land at Kennedy Space Center and conclude its 28th mission, it broke apart while re-entering the atmosphere over Texas. All seven astronauts on the board on board perished. Afterward, the shuttle fleet was grounded until July 2005 when Discovery launched on its program's 114th mission. By the time Discovery completed its 39th and final mission, the most of any shuttle, in March 2011, it had flown 148 million miles and made 5,830 orbits of the Earth and spent 365 days in space. <clears throat> Endeavour completed the 25th and final mission on June 2011. The mission was uh, commanded by Captain Mark Kelly, husband of the former U.S. Congressman Gabriel Giffords. On June, July 8, 2011, Atlantis was launched on its 33rd mission with four crew members aboard. Atlantis flew thousands of uh, pounds of supplies and extra parts to the International Space Station. It was the 37th shuttle flight to make the trip. Thirteen days later, on July 21st, Atlantis touched down at Kennedy Space Center at 5.57 a.m. after a journey of more than 5 million miles, during which it orbited the Earth 200 times. Upon landing, the flight commander, Captain Christopher Ferguson, said, Mission complete, Houston. After serving the world for over 30 years, the space shuttle has earned its place in history and has come to its final stop. During its 26 years in service, Atlantis flew almost 126 million miles, circled the Earth 4,848 times, and spent 307 days in space. The estimated price tag for the entire program was $209 billion. Amazing. What a great program it was. 
pretty much coincided with the uh, program ceased when uh, President Barack Obama decided that, that we weren't going to consider, consider or continue the program. Well, right on the heels of all that, the world's richest man, Jeff Bezos, thanked his employees and customers Tuesday for subsidizing the Blue Origin space flight. flight. He and three others, younger brother Mark Bezos, 82-year-old aviation pioneer Mary Wallace, Wally Funk, and Dutch teenager Oliver Damon spent 11 minutes inside a capsule after blasting off from Van Horn County, Texas, in the desert. The New Shepard capsule, named for the first American in space, Alan Shepard, took off on the 52nd anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing and reached an altitude of 66 miles. Upon returning to Earth, Bezos said, I want to thank every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all this. A little bit of tone deaf. Uh, <laughs> he was it's probably not very well coached on that one. So seriously, for every Amazon customer out there and every Amazon employee, thank you from the bottom of my heart very much. It's very much appreciated. He actually said, this is the best day of my life. <clears throat> Needless to say, Bezos was ripped by critics for his thanking customers for subsidizing the reported $5.5 billion cost for the flight. $5.5 billion. The whole space program back in the day was $209 billion. It's amazing. It's worth a lot of money. He's the richest man in the world. and He says that he sold a billion dollars of Amazon stock each year in order to pay for uh, this experience. He planned ahead. Hmm. Senator Rand Paul and Dr. Anthony Fauci clashed at the Senate Health Committee hearing on Tuesday after the Kentucky Republican implied that the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease Director had previously lied to Congress about the role the National Institute of Health played in funding controversial research in Wuhan, China, the National Review reported. Paul implied that uh, Fauci misled Congress during the May, he didn't imply it, he actually said it, uh, during May testimony in which Fauci said that the United States had never funded Wuhan Institute of uh, Virology gain-of-function projects, which involves making viruses more contagious or deadly in a laboratory. Paul said the testimony before Congress in May, Fauci stated that the uh, NIH had never and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and yet gain-of-function research was done entirely in the Wuhan Institute by Dr. Xi and was funded by NIH. At the hearing on Tuesday, which was about the federal response to the coronavirus panic, Paul cited a paper by uh, the Wuhan uh, uh, Institute scientists, which listed the NIH as a source of funding and describes attempts to produce chimeric coronaviruses, meaning they altered by man. <clears throat> the senator then said the research recorded in the paper explicitly matches the definition of gain-of-function research and then asked Fauci, knowing it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your May 11th claim that the uh, uh, NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan. Fauci responded, I have never lied before Congress, and I do not retract that statement. This paper was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain-of-function. When uh, Paul interrupted trying to ask how much it, uh, what took place in the Wuhan lab uh, was not gain-of-function research, uh, uh, Fauci responded by saying, Senator Paul, you do not know what you're talking about. <laughs> You do not know what you're talking about, he said, and I want to say that officially, the Hill reported. Paul, you know, I watched this entire proceedings. Paul kept his cool. Paul interrupted Fauci again, reading the NIH definition of gain-of-function, which says scientific research that increases the transmissibility among animals in gain-of-function. The senator continued by saying that the Wuhan uh, virus uh, researchers took animal viruses that increased their transmissibility transmissibility to humans. How can you say it's not gain of function? It's a dance, and you're dancing around this because you're trying to obscure responsibility for the 4 million people around the world dying from a pandemic. Fauci then shot back, saying, I totally resent the lie you are propagating, Senator. If you look at those viruses, studies in the, in the paper there, those viruses are molecularly impossible to result in SARS-CoV-2. You are implying what we did was responsible for the deaths of individ individuals. If anybody is lying here, Senator, it is you. Well, in my opinion, I think uh, Rand Paul did a great job. Uh, he actually, because he gave him a chance to retract a statement, he wouldn't retract it. He just dug deeper. He doubled down. 
And I think uh, we're going to find out uh, that Fauci is going to be in some serious legal trouble here. And I'm sure the things are going to start grinding here pretty quickly. In fact, I think uh, Paul has already sent a recommendation to the Department of Justice to indict Fauci. He's guilty. He lied. The American Academy of Pediatrics announced Monday that it recommends that all children over the age of two years wear masks as they return to 2022-21-22 school year, whether or not they are vaccinated. Uh, that according to NBC. What are the details here? Well, it's in a statement the organization said that the new guidance is a layered approach to protecting children and making sense because a good portion of the school-age population is yet to be vaccinated. This is true absurdity. Thank goodness we live in Florida. That won't happen here because of our governor. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to visit with Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best, building a performing arts uh, center in downtown Naples. You can find out more by visiting gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Andy Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Thank you, Bob. And uh, last week we started a discussion of some of the highlights of the Supreme Court session of the Supreme Court of the United States. And uh, let's pick up our discussion on the Fourth Amendment. Uh, tell us what's the hot pursuit case. The general rule is that police don't need a warrant uh, to enter your home if they're in hot pursuit of a fleeing felon. 
the question in this case, which was called Lang versus California, was whether that same rule covers persons who might have committed misdemeanors, not just felons. The facts were interesting. Lang was playing loud music and honking his car horn, not the same as murder, uh, pulled into his garage. The officer prevented him from closing the door, smelled alcohol, and then charged Lang with DUI. So in a unanimous opinion uh, by Justice Kagan, the court really just punted they would not establish a categorical rule that said that the hot pursuit applies to, to misdemeanors or doesn't apply. What they did was they just sent the case back to the lower court for a look, another look at the particular circumstances of this case. So we're likely to see the same issue coming back uh, in another term. Pretty annoying playing loud music and honking your horn. <laughs> yeah, but you know. Uh, <laughs> A warrant to come into the home is a pretty serious matter. Yeah, absolutely. I shouldn't make light of it. So Kate has argued for elimination of qualified immunity. What is that, and what did the court have to say about it? Qualified immunity is a judge-made doctrine. It's not a matter of law. It's a matter of judicial dicta that exempts officers, police and other officers, from civil lawsuits for damages unless... The officer violates clearly established constitutional rights that have been already vindicated in prior litigation within the same judicial circuit. So this is a case called Taylor versus Rojas, and the court held 7-1. to one. Only Thomas uh, dissented, and he didn't say why. The court held that prison officials are not entitled to immunity in this case. Now, this case is pretty egregious. The officials housed their prisoners in cells that were teeming with human waste for six days. Huh. And then they argued that they were immune from a lawsuit by the prisoners because the law wasn't clearly established. No go, said the court. Um, no reasonable correction officer could have concluded that those conditions were permissible. Now, regrettably... Uh, the court didn't do what we wanted them to do, and that is to reject this qualified immunity doctrine altogether. But it did move the ball in the right direction by uh, affirming that the conditions in this case were just so egregious that the plaintiff uh, didn't have to identify a identical prior case in the same judicial circuit. Step in the right direction. So uh, our case <coughs> uh, institutes uh, positions they would not support qualified immunity? They'd like to see that taken away from, for example, police officers? Yes, that's that's the case. Now, that doesn't mean that police officers uh, can be sued for everything under the sun. It simply means they can't claim categoric immunity just because there hasn't been a lawsuit on the identical issue within the same judicial circuit. So it's a pretty narrow doctrine, but it's it's operated, I think, to protect uh, police officers in some egregious cases where they did not deserve protection i see because yeah, i've uh, in the absence of that information i've been concerned that removing it would uh, reduce <clears throat> the protection for police officers to doing their jobs and we don't want to see less protection we'd like to see good protection but uh, I, I, that was a concern of mine any comments there's on certainly that? a balancing issue there and <clears throat> but you, you know you also bear in mind that in almost all cases the police officers themselves are uh, uh, are given uh, protection indemnity by the uh, police department. So it is very, very rare, even when a police officer is held to be liable, that the officer himself ends up paying the bill. They're always uh, indemnified by the police department. Well, thanks for that clarification. So voting rights is a really hot issue right now. How did the court resolve the Arizona case? Well, there were two issues raised in the case, uh, Arizona Republican Party versus the Democratic National Committee. The question was whether restrictions on ballot harvesting violated the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the Arizona law said that the only people who could gather ballots and, and uh, take them to a ballot box were election officials, mail carriers, family members, household members, or caregivers. 
Um, that was one case. And then in the second case, Bronovich versus Democratic National Committee, the question was whether states can reject ballots of people who vote in the wrong precinct. So the court on uh, split in both cases are along ideological grounds. Alito wrote for the 6-3 conservative majority. He upheld both Arizona laws, and he applied a set of five criteria. Uh, what's the burden on the voter? Uh, is there a departure from the 1982 practice when the Voting Rights Act was, was amended? Uh, is there a disparate impact by race or ethnicity? What's the burden on the state? Uh, and what's the state's interest in the matter. And Alito said that there was just insufficient evidence that this was discriminatory. Uh, The decision, however, was narrow in both cases. Uh, These are particular issues, that is, ballot harvesting and voting in the wrong precinct. It doesn't mean necessarily that the court's going to approve some of the more egregious uh, voting restrictions or disapprove uh, that some states are trying to enact. Uh, that's going to be, uh, I think, a topic of considerable controversy coming up. Yeah, it certainly is. So tell us about the case involving labor unions and private property rights. This was another big case, actually. <clears throat> that it was Cedar Point Nursery Nursery versus Hasid. And the nursery argued that California's agricultural labor law granted union organizers extensive entry rights to the nursery's private property. The nursery said, no, that's an unconstitutional taking in violation of the Fifth Amendment's taking clause. Justice Roberts and the five other conservatives agreed with the nursery, and they held that a regulation that grants access to an employer's private property for union solicitation is a per se physical taking. It's as if the property were actually seized by the union organizers, and therefore they needed permission to come in. And Roberts, of course, pointed out that the organizers have lots of other options. They're free to meet the workers in an almost infinite number of places, just not on the union, on the nursery's private property without the unions, uh, without the nursery's consent. See, Bob, to me, that's a really big deal. It's uh, important to protect property rights like that and uh, to have labor bosses who, in many cases, for example, from SEIU, are really creating egregious violations of (laughs) just doing all kinds of dirty tricks. Uh, They shouldn't be allowed on the property without uh, permission. So, and you know, I think uh, Roberts is right. There's a lot of other choices of how to unionize, including secret ballot. That's right. And interestingly, this... You know, very few of the cases came down 6-3. Everybody was worried about, oh, my God, the court has been so radicalized and tilted toward the conservative side that we're going to have nothing but uh, 6-3 conservative majorities. I think there were only nine cases this term out of 65 that came down 6-3, and a lot of those were not along ideological grounds. And there were only three uh, cases that were actually, you know, that you'd call hot-button cases. But this this was one of them. Uh, this property rights case. I think it is a, a hot-button case. The other, of course, were the, the, uh, voting, uh, the voting rights cases. I've forgotten. Did you say, did this come down 6-3? This did come down 6-3, and Alito wrote for the conservatives. Yeah. All right, thank you, Bob. Bob Levy, again, chairman of the Cato Institute. Always appreciate uh, your fairly interesting commentary here, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure, Bob. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. And again, Cato.org is the website. C-A-T-O.org. I hope you check it out. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andy Joppa. Andy is a professor. He's also author of Josepha Savaz. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Lyndon and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit gulfshoreplayhouse.org. That's gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. You can go to uh, download the app at choicesocial.us. Choicesocial.us. I hope you check it out. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Andy Joppa. He is a professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So, uh, 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 we've characterized ourselves as uh, the optimist and the pessimist. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, you being somewhat pessimistic, me a little bit more optimistic. So uh, any good news for us today? I, I think we're both marginal in both of those areas, so I think we typically meet in the middle someplace. Yeah. Uh, there is some good news. It's not dramatic, but I think it may be a, a break in the armor of the left. Uh, the other day uh, on the uh, Brian Stelter show, uh, he had Michael Wolf, a journalist, as one of his guests. And Michael Wolf, Wolf, during the interview with him, said uh, Brian uh, Stelter was sanctimonious. He's like a media hall monitor who believes he has a monopoly on the truth. And this went on <clears throat> for several minutes, if I might. And it was the first time I've actually seen on CNN a direct challenge to the way CNN handles the news, particularly Brian Stelter. So, uh, again, when I see uh, cracks in the armor like that, I think that's a, a maybe a symptom of something. Uh, it has to get something bigger than that, of course, but uh, it's good news as it stands, Bob. Well, there's no question. The majority of the American people right now think, uh, do not trust, think, thinks that the mainstream media is the enemy of the people. Again, they have a lower popularity rating than the United States Congress, which is hard to imagine, but it's true. Yeah. Uh, so I think when we're looking at this, and again, for the most part, they don't seem to care, Bob. It's uh, a typical totalitarian model in which they, uh, they seek their own uh, directions, and they're not really too concerned with the, uh, the general public's reaction to those directions. And I think we're seeing that uh, across the board, not only in the media, but uh, almost any place else we can look in institutional life. Uh, if we look at the uh, circumstance with, uh, with China, recently uh, China was uh, acknowledged essentially as uh, having been, not China per se, but hackers in China, authored the uh, Microsoft uh, um, cyber attack uh, back in February. And of course, um, uh, rather than doing anything direct to, to China, Biden uh, offered what he called nations shaming uh, in other words, rather than sanctions or anything else that might be more significant, uh, as he eventually did with uh, with Russia, uh, China was let off the hook, essentially, with this nation's shaming concept by even pointing it out. 
uh, I'll mention for your for your listeners, I had published a couple of blogs uh, a week or so ago, uh, one uh, talking about the growth economically of China in a relatively short uh, time frame, the other about their educational growth, again, within that same uh, limited time frame. I was not extolling the virtues of China or ignoring their their indiscretions or some of the horrors that they they engage in, but just merely pointing out that this is, for the first time perhaps in our history, truly a worthy adversary. Not worthy in the moral sense, but worthy in the sense of, of pre- preparation, size, and uh, uh, and growth, particularly in the manufacturing area. Now, the, f- the thing I found disconcerting, immediately after publishing those two pieces, uh, what I read in several conservative sites was uh, not referring to my essays, of course, but in general, talking about how China is going to lose. I also had seven or eight pieces of feedback from my readers uh, talking about that uh, in spite of all this growth and the strength of China that I documented, uh, China was was weak. Demographically, they were weak. They weren't producing enough children. They had an aging population. Uh, there were problems in the western provinces, problems in, in Hong Kong. She was weak. Uh, there was a chance for revolution. So, But no one talked about one thing, and it was very obvious to me. No one talked about the United States beating China. In other words, at this point, as best I can tell, everybody sees the only way China will lose is if China loses, Bob. That is a very disconcerting thing to me when uh, the whole um, strength that you might display is the weakness of your enemy, Bob. You know, uh, when President Tr- Trump said he was going to do something, he did it. And I think uh, Xi and other leaders around the world understood that. And therefore, they, you know, if, if they wanted to go to war, they could certainly try and provoke him. But uh, he, he wanted to have a strong military, and he wanted to do what he said he was going to do. And he did that consistently. Right now, again, we've got this red line business going on, uh, the Obama red line uh, in Syria business. And uh, so the consequence is I don't think many people are going to take his threats very seriously. Well, I, I think there is a, a serious threat from, from China in general. Uh, I am not predicting. I uh, talked about uh, this with you several occasions. I don't see a battlefield war uh, being something that uh, is in the future, but certainly this concept of asymmetric warfare. Uh, and again, and I've alluded to this several times, but it's worth repeating, I think that certainly COVID-19 coming out of the Wuhan viral laboratories was either intentionally released or, if not intentionally released, was intentionally allowed to spread throughout the whole world. That is the first statement of, of asymmetric warfare. That is the uh, that is the model that will be used by China, I believe, going into the future. So. Uh, I think China is a serious threat to this country. I think perhaps more so, not because of what China is, but because of what the United States is not at this moment, Bob. You know, and by the way, I want to remind our listeners that uh, I'm posted, uh, not all of your blogs, because sometimes I forget, but I posted at least the last three things that should be done but won't be done. Uh, lions, li- uh, lying lions, lying in wait. <laughs> nice play on words there. Real tongue twister. And America must win. China will not lose. Uh, so you can take a look at them on my website. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is the tab pull down tab at the top of the website? Correct me if I'm wrong. So Andy, let's let's uh, move to uh, another disturbing area where we're not doing so well. That's public education. Yeah, we're doing, uh, it's not that we're not just doing well, that's always been the case. In other words, if I go back to my activism days in the 90s, the school systems were, were failing, not every one of them, of course, but in general, uh, compared to the international uh, competition of, of students, we were, uh, even our, our, our average student was at the near the bottom end, and even our best students uh, were no better than in the middle. So even at our best, uh, this is prior to what we're seeing now, the schools were not performing, and uh, there was serious reason to reform them even at that moment. The, uh, the Carnegie Report back in 1983 said that if what was happening to our public schools was done by a, uh, an enemy, it would be declared a state of war. That is how serious the, uh, the educational problem was seen back at that point in time. But right now, I think we've got to look at what uh, Victor Davis Hanson uh, wrote uh, just, just just the other day in his uh, essay, The American Descent into Madness. And he said there are three characteristics of what is happening right now or what might be happening. One, the events are unsustainable. In other words, they will either cease or they will destroy the nation, at least as we know it. 
In other words, the events that are going on right now in America, if they do not, if we can't stop them, will destroy the nation as we know it, too. The law has largely been rendered meaningless, and three, left-wing political agendas justify any means necessary to achieve them. And I totally agree with, uh, with Dr. Hansen in terms of those positions, especially point one, the events that are taking place right now in America, if we can't get in their way, will destroy this nation, Bob. I agree with that wholeheartedly, and uh, we're seeing that exhibited in public schools right now. I mean, we've got the critical race theory. We've got 1619 Project. We've got uh, gender identification, you know, the spectrum of our gender, gender, uh, gender identity. Uh, this uh, things that are just unbelievable that you wouldn't even think of uh, a decade ago. Well, all of these things are, are forms of applied Marxism. And, you know, the term is being banded about so much that it's almost lost its impact. This is Marxist, that's Marxist. But in, in fact, these are Marxist uh, elements. Uh, if we look at Marxist doctrine, the key element, the primary element of Marxist doctrine is, in fact, taking over the educational systems of a nation. It isn't just one of many things that must be done. It is the key thing that must be done. Mm -hmm. uh, as has been said many times, and I pointed out, it's been said by Machiavelli, the Jesuits, uh, was said by Mao, Stalin, Pol Pot, uh, and, and, and Hitler. Uh, if you do not get the brains of the minds of the children before the age of seven, you will not have them. So what the uh, Marxists have done is they've had to go after the public schools, uh, inculcate Marxist doctrine into the public schools. And as you pointed out, those are Marxist approaches, uh, critical race theory, uh, the application of BLM, uh, the 1619 Project, white fragility. All of these are applied concepts of Marxism. Not in the specifics, Bob, mm -hmm. but in the general intent of destroying the heritage of a country and, in fact, moving the, the developing children away from any linkage they have uh, with, the, with the historic nature of what America has been, Bob. Yeah, and you think about the teachers' unions led by Marxists, this uh, Man Mandy, or Sin I've forgotten her name now, but it doesn't matter. Weingarten. Weingarten, yes. Uh, the point being is that she's declared that, yeah, hey, we support this stuff. We think it should be taught in schools. And, and so when you have the uh, leaders uh, internally all kind of supporting this process, in my view, the best solution, and oh, this will never happen, I'm sure, but it would be to uh, take public schools, turn them into uh charter schools and have a board of directors, elected board of directors uh, in each school to, uh, and then, and then to decide what the mission is going to be and, and continue from there. Well, I mean, there's no doubt that that's true if it's done uh, with enough scale. Uh, certainly privatization has also been one of the things dramatically resisted by Marxists that took place in, in every country where they were trying to implement Marxist doctrine. Any attempt to move into privatization has been dramatically resisted, and I think we're seeing that uh, right now. And if privatization becomes more front and center, I think we're going to see more active resistance. In my most recent essay published, just, I, I guess, yesterday, Bob, uh, and I was, you know, I'm not predicting this could happen uh, I just said it must happen. Uh, it won't, but it must. And that is the public schools in some form must be closed down. Yeah. Uh, I, I create the analogy. Uh, if, if a person is dying of thirst and there's water available, but it's poisonous, you can't drink it. And I think right now the public schools are such an uh, a major linchpin of the entire Marxist process that if we allow them to stay in place as they are, that the, the, the future of America is is written within the educational failures that we'll see, Bob. Well, the, the, the answer, of course, is for all, all of us to be vigilant and pay attention to what's going on locally and in our own school boards and make sure uh, that we're attentive to that. Uh, right here in Collier County, we spend over a billion dollars. The biggest budget item we have is a billion dollars on public schools, and yet uh, our schools are, that they rate them A+, plus, B-, minus, that kind of thing, or B+. Plus. Uh, but, but on a scale of what? I mean, the, the schools, uh, in terms of uh, reading level and uh, mass skills, they are way below average. In fact, if, I think I read that the uh, average eighth grader, or was a fifth grader, uh, reads at 58% of the kids in school read at, at uh, grade level. Uh, there's, there's no doubt, and that is a, a number that is on the decline. It's not a number that's stable or on the ascendancy. I remember back even teaching university classes, Bob, I would hold up a, 
uh, a copy of the New York Times, and I would ask anyone to read the headline of the New York Times, and they could all read the words, Bob. Then I would ask them what the words meant. And in all too many cases, although they could pronounce the word and they understood the, the word in isolation, when you put those words into a full, into a full context, they did not have the ability to interpret uh, a full sentence, its syntax, and what its intent was. Wow. So I think we're looking at not only a failure to, uh, to read in the traditional illiterate sense, I think we're looking at the inability to comprehend what is being read, and that is a dramatic problem. That is also true in the area of, of numeracy, that the, John Allen Polos has written many books about the decline in the ability of Americans to understand numbers, particularly in the area of statistics. And I, I would suggest in a complex modern society, if you do not understand statistics, you will lose, Bob. You will no, lose. No question. Hey, you also made some interesting comments about the CIA, FBI, uh, and uh, terms of what they're contributing to our society or not. Would you, uh, for our listeners, benefit perhaps talk about that? Well, you know, it's the, the same point I would make or I made about the, the public school system. Uh, as it stands right now, if we just let the FBI stay in place as it is, it is doing far more damage than, than uh, providing benefit. Um, I think what uh, the point I make, and I, it's sort of a point that I'm inferring from circumstance, is that the FBI must succeed to a certain extent. Why? Because they have to gain leverage to do the politicized portion of what they want to do. And the only way they gain legitimacy, Bob, is by, by fulfilling their basic function, at least in a meaningful manner. So what you see in the FBI, but not just limited to the National Police Force, not just the FBI, but we're seeing this in the CIA, the NSA, all the intelligence agencies across the board. Uh, they are trying to document that they are a necessity and that no matter how politicized they become, you cannot get rid of them. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges for the future, not only in education, as I pointed out, but also in terms of our intelligence agencies. We have to make a decision about either dramatically reforming them or in some other way getting rid of them, Bob. I, I know that's a difficult thing, if even being possible, but I think that's what we're looking at right now, Bob. Uh, how about just replacing the entire seventh floor of the, of the uh, FBI? <laughs> Or I guess that's the CIA, isn't it? I've forgotten. But the point being is getting rid of the top leadership. Well, I, I hope it's the top leadership. But again, I have not seen anyone in the FBI coming forward, uh, pointing out uh, in place the indiscretions that have taken place with the FBI. Uh, all the FBI members at lower levels seem to be uh, more than willing to become complicit in the most absurd actions. The 6 a.m. raid on Roger Stone's yeah. house with the weapons drawn. And I, I know they're under orders, but there doesn't seem to be anything within the FBI at any level of the hierarchy that is pushback against what the FBI at the leadership level is doing. It takes me back to the time of J. Edgar Hoover when exactly that same model existed. Uh, I could probably make the point, Bob, and I will, that the FBI, since Hoover, and that model existed, I don't think it's changed that much at all since the time of J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was Truman that said back in 1947 that uh, he made it, there was a big mistake made when they created the FBI and he wanted to get rid of the... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think Truman. What did he say? Truman said that if he had known uh, what the CIA would become, uh, the American Gestapo, he never would have created it at the time he did. So uh, even then, there was an early recognition. This is with the CIA, the International uh, Agency for the United States. Uh, but again, it, it's taking place. We've seen that consistently, especially during the the Trump administration, that there is a politicization that is not working in the best interest of America, and they're certainly working outside their appropriate area of of, uh, of authorization, Bob. Absolutely. So uh, before I let you go, uh, Andy, any thoughts on the 2020, 2022 midterms and uh, our approach to that? Well, you know, I, I've been predicting for a while, and unfortunately, I think my prediction is going to come to pass. The 2022 elections will again be uh, be uh, intruded on by COVID-19 or the Delta variant. I think we're we're seeing a, a growing intensity. The uh, the recording of additional cases, the recording of additional deaths, the, uh, the 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 constant drumbeat that people are resisting vaccination. So I think we're looking at within the next year and in several months. Uh, that this will be front and center still in the 2022 elections. I cannot see the Democrats having gained uh, almost a total power 
uh, abandoning that in the 2022 elections by allowing these elections to go forward in a perfectly legal model. So I think uh, that is my prediction. I think we're going to see 2020 uh, repeated in 2022, Bob. Boy, that is back to the optimist pessimist <laughs> labels that I'm putting on on us. But the point <laughs> the point being is that uh, I'm I'm a little bit more hopeful. We are seeing a lot of states put uh, uh, protections in place, le- law, uh, lawful protections in place to protect the elections. Uh, number one and number two, I think the American people are just I, I think they're much more aware now. I think they're paying attention to what's going on. If you're presuming total legality, then I would agree with you, but I am presuming something other than total legality. Uh, you know, I agree with that. And, of course, we're not just talking about the Democrats and, the dirty, or, and their dirty tricks. We're talking about the Russians, the Chinese, I mean, the d- different ways that they participated in, in this last election. We should be very concerned and very vigilant. And, and the lack of, of uh, appropriate uh, actions by the, by the courts. You know, we, we saw obvious constitutional variations when the uh, when the uh, the governors of states or other committees in the states, attorney generals, uh, changed the voting laws and it was only supposed to be done. And this is by the constitutional mandate requirement uh, that this only be done by the state legislatures. And yet the Supreme Court failed to take up cases obviously dealing with blatant unconstitutionality. So uh, unless the courts get back to doing their job, which is one job only, Bob, and that's to enforce the Constitution. Uh, I think we we will remain in trouble if that continues. Well, well, you make a great point. Again, I just want to remind our listeners that uh, your latest blogs are on my website. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is a pull down tab at the top. Uh, uh, correct me if, if I'm wrong. Uh, Andy's blogs. Andy, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcast Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months, finally having exhausted all alternatives for pain management. Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's also the author of several books, in fact, ten of them, I believe. His latest is a great read, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I always enjoy it. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Professor. And uh, Larry, uh, 
Today is the anniversary of uh, NASA's space shuttle program completing its final 135th mission, uh, the shuttle Atlantis. Uh, that was shut down in t uh, 2011 on this day. And, uh, of course, we've had a couple of ventures into space in the last couple of, uh, uh, well, days, actually. Uh, kind of interesting that uh, Bezos just landed yesterday, I guess it was. And uh, 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 the... Uh, I forgot his name. Richard Branson uh, had made his effort as well. I wonder if you make any comments on what's happening. Yeah, yeah, Bob. I, I, I would. I think it's a it's a great thing. Uh, I don't really usually talk about this, but I I've, I've been involved very much in the commercial aeros, you know, space business myself. I, uh, along with the uh, chief engineer of NASA, we we formed a company years ago and to to develop an orbital space facility and. We started with you know, four of us partners, and it grew to over 8,000 people and uh, wow. went public on the New York Stock Exchange and, and so on. And, and Neil Armstrong was on our board and, and so on, along with the first two directors of the Johnson Space Center. So I think it was one of the early, very earliest of the uh, commercial, commercial programs. And uh, so I'm a big enthusiast for... What the commercial sector can do. I've been, been involved with several high tech companies. And uh, I had an interesting call. Somebody wanted to, you know, actually Newsmax I was going to do an article, a news article on on the uh, on the launch yesterday. And she said, you know, the person said, is this, it's just a just bunch of billionaires with expensive toys? <clears throat> and I thought, you know, it's, it's kind of an, it was an innocent question. And I think, I think it's a, a, a fair question, and and I said, well, yeah, but but those are pretty impressive toys, and and I th I think it's on one hand I think what they're doing, and what Musk has been doing with SpaceX and with Blue Origin, and and uh, Bert Rutan designed that system. He didn't get much credit, but uh, he's a good friend of mine. And uh, you know, the, in the launch yesterday, these are. These are real achievements, and uh, and I think they've excited interest in space again. Mm -hmm. And I think that the things they're doing with reusable first stage boosters and so on um, are going to be really, you know, they're significant things where we're not throwing away all the rockets. And it's come out of the commercial sector and commercial ingenuity in a way. And then I think, I frankly think NASA like most big organizations, government organizations, becomes there's a certain stagnancy that happens. Mm -hmm. And and I think that the commercial sector is both providing new energy and new technologies and a kind of belief that we can, we can dream again, we can do things, that we don't have to belong to a big NASA bureaucracy and be part of that, that entrenched system to, to do really amazing things, whether it's Putting rovers on the surface of the Mars, or flying, you know, flying, uh, you know, flying to space, you know, to to um, you know, the borders of space. At least, uh, I think the space much larger than than low Earth orbit. You know, but where we just a chance to yeah. dream again about the moon, Mars. Like, to me, the moon, the moon is just a stepping stone. You know, in terms of technological stepping stone. To, uh, to to go to Mars and beyond, and have people dream again. Yeah. And I have these you know, graduate students in my program that I started so many years ago, in space architecture, and I just I just love them. They, you know, they come from all over the world, and they're such they're such true believers, and and uh, to me to me it's very exciting. Professor, thank you so much for that, and I know that you played an important role in the space program. Do you see the uh, in the future? Do you see the government having contracts with these private companies? And I'm talking, you know, ten years into the future, a decade or more. Uh, uh, will they, or do you think uh, NASA will continue? I think what we've seen is um, so much of what we've called commercials, you know, activity in space, has been simply NASA off offloading and. Out, you know, outsourcing a lot of things that NASA does mm. and basically paying them to, to do these things. And to me, yeah, it's kind of commercial, but basically, you know, your customers, it's the government, your customers, NASA, and they're going to micromanage the hell out of it and, and, and so on. 
to me, it's, it's kind of a starter thing where it kind of jump starts, gives some companies some, you know, some, you know, some uh, money to help begin to develop. But when we started our company, we didn't, we didn't start with any government money. We raised you know, tens of millions of dollars privately, real money, and uh, you know, to, to put a program forward. But I think as as these companies as these companies developed, you know, a lot of them have failed, and a lot of them, and some of them are succeeding. Yeah, they find new markets, and you know, I'm not sure tourism is a very sustainable market. I've, and and I'm saying nobody knows that. Nobody, I mean, either way, you know, it's it has to have some really deep pockets to you know to want to to do that. But but I, I see it as also an enabler, and then we see the satellite business. That's another market which is gets gets into a commercial market because you're you're dealing with a lot of other private companies and so on. So. So the, to me, the commercialization is when you you find customers and, and services and value outside of government, mm-hmm. and uh, you're not. It's not. Uh, you know, it's it's not something that's just totally subsidized. Uh, I think we see, for example, if you look at you know, companies that aerospace companies that build aircraft. You know, the 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 side of the company that does commercial work and and you know is and has to make a living. Operates very, very differently than the, than the side of the company that has NASA for a customer. And I'm, I'm being, I'm being very frank here. I'm old enough to be able to talk <laughs> like that, and and uh, I don't have to be loved by everybody. But but it's just a different animal. And I'm a believer in commercial space in the real sense that we find real markets and real and and advance those markets by developing the you know the the wherewithal, the technologies, expertise to pursue them. You know, we sometimes are not aware of how much uh, these uh, space ventures have have contributed to our current science and to products and things that have been developed right here on Earth. Uh, Is there a a big frontier out there for for continued growth and uh, product development? Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm sorry, I wasn't quite hearing your. Mom, I wasn't quite hearing your question. I'm so sorry. I I was uh, simply commenting that sometimes we take for granted everything we've discovered from our space ventures, and I was wondering if you see a, a continued big frontier out there for, from things that we can learn and apply uh, here on Earth. Isn't it interesting how you know decades ago we couldn't have ever imagined you know home computers yeah. and 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 and. Cell phones, like I'm speaking on now, that uh, are so magical and they, they give us all this information about weather and anything else we want, a lot more than we want sometimes. And so to try to project ahead and say, well, you know, if, you know, what, what, what will we be missing if, if we don't, you know, if we don't, you know, go forward? And we have no way of knowing because, you know, who could have, you know, quantum theory was so weird and still is. Uh, you know, decades ago, Einstein said, no, it doesn't make any sense. But still, now we're building quantum computers. We still don't understand how they work, mm. but they're just gazillion times faster than and, and stronger than, than normal computers. So I think when we end, when we stop discovery, um, and, and, and the thing about space is it gives us something outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very big, it's a very, very big frontier to study and, and and think about it. I'm I'm writing a book right now. I've been we've been working with with Buzz Aldrin, and I think we're going to get it finished this year. And it has to do with his vision of where all this is going, and 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 and, and a big part of it is the is the inspiration to young generations. I think with space, the, the public interest is you know there's so many different things. It's going to motivate our children. It's going to give us the the next you know response to the Teflon, or it's going to it's going to be a great uh, uh, economic market, or it's, we're going to mine asteroids. And all these things. It's, they have all these different things, and they're all sort of true. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that public interest is broad, but it's pretty thin. Yeah. And you have to see progress. You have to have things happening that the, that excite the public and say, "Well, there's really something to this, and it's not just a big government program." And uh, we don't have a space race anymore in that sense as we did with uh, Sputnik and Gagarin and so on, it's now it's, it's sort of kumbaya on one hand, let's go to Mars together, and the other hand, it's it's uh, quite a different matter where space both 
reflects and drives our society. Yeah. And uh, it's a mirror of, of what we believe and what we think we can do. And, and, uh, and we can't look backwards in that mirror. Yeah. Professor Larry Bell, again, I, we didn't talk about what we intended to talk about. I just want to remind our listeners that uh, your column in Newsmax.com is on point. The latest was, no, uh, no Cuba communist catastrophe isn't a mismanagement problem. It's well worth the read. Also, uh, your latest book, What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional, it's a great read as well. Uh, Professor, I really look forward to the new book that you're writing with Buzz Aldrin. Look, that should be very fascinating as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I really enjoy it. Thank you. My pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you'll join us uh, tomorrow. We've got some great guests lined up as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harton Show on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharton.com.